Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Talking About Podcast. Again, no intro music, you know, as the as a one of the podcasters on the show and the editor of the podcast, you would think like I should be putting in intro music, but much like a basketball player who doesn't shoot, I am just refusing to do that for the time being. Sean, how are you? <laughs> I think I'm doing a little bit better than you. Um, <laughs> I, I have an extra decade and a half of crushing Philadelphia losses in the bank. So I feel like my my calluses and scars are have been hardened over the years where these types of situations don't affect me quite as much um yeah it's it's frustrating uh this is our first pod since the sixers have been eliminated and even even in we're going to talk about both games of six and seven even game six like they basically won because tyrese maxi had a bit of an out-of-body experience for about 10 minutes of game time so Everyone came out of that like, oh, well, at least they righted the ship a little bit. And they're like, oh, just stick Maxi in the starting lineup in game seven. And I'm just thinking having a rookie flash over like half a game is not the answer. It's It hasn't fixed any of the problems that are inherent with the, the roster as it was constructed this past season. And, you know, they they through Maxi, they didn't start him, but he played a decent amount in game seven and he went back to, you know, being a, basically a non-factor, which is, it's not to say that Maxi's not going to have a bright future. I, I mean, we both love him, but you, you can't rely on a rookie, especially a, a rookie that doesn't have a lot of in-game reps throughout the course of the season to suddenly like pull your fat out of the fire. Um, and then, yeah, game, we're going to talk a lot about Simmons because we're going to talk about off-season moves that Daryl Morey has in front of him, but I think the uh, seeing Trey Young in front of him under the rim and deciding to pass to Matisse, uh, that was the fitting final straw for the, the Ben Simmons era in Philadelphia. When you watch that play again, you can even see like Tobias, Seth, and Embiid all standing at the top of the key, and that's why it was so open, because they were like all their defenders were staring, staying near them. Like, they all throw their hands up, like, shrugging in disbelief. They are so confused by what Ben is doing. Matisse is confused. Matisse was not cutting before the ball was passed to him. Like, Matisse looks surprised as the ball's coming out. He did not expect it to happen. I, yeah, that play is – that play was the lowest point. Um, like, you say game six. I mean, game six was a win, and you take all wins. But, like, it was a very painful, not fun win felt like they were going to lose most of the time somehow hanging on one out of the five close games in the series the only one that they won and yeah it was like Embiid did usual Embiid things Tobias had like a solid game Maxi, of course did all his stuff Seth Curry was great and he threw up the seven fingers at the end which I really loved although that would age better if they had won game seven 
Well, they got the game seven, so he wasn't wrong. No, he's not that he's wrong. But like that's <laughs> when Steph did it against OKC in 2016. They then won Game Seven, which makes it a little bit cooler. <laughs> like, like threatening. You're technically Seth's showing to the crowd how many games they're gonna win in the opposing crowd. So maybe uh, it was the number of guys on the roster that won't be here next year. Oh man, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was something else, man. And yeah, that Game Seven, it felt like a loss most of the way through. You know. Embiid was playing great. Seth had some good moments, but really just they they looked like a mess. And it's hard to say where they go from here. They did. Uh, and and they were still up four in the fourth quarter. It, it was like despite they they were clearly I, I know Atlanta just won against Milwaukee in game one, and the constant refrain from people is that people aren't giving Atlanta enough credit. And they were playing well. They deserve credit for for winning the series. But the Sixers Aside from game one, when Doc put them behind the eight ball with the disastrous starting Danny on Trey and going with the all bench lineup for a few minutes too long. Um, aside from that game, even the games they lost throughout the course of the games, you were just thinking, man, if they just like get it together and play like normal basketball, they should win by 10. Like, because th- they were doing everything possible to let Atlanta get away with the games. And they were still like, oh, it's the fourth quarter and they have a lead. Like maybe they'll pull it out despite looking like absolute garbage for most of this game. So it's it's just, it was an incredibly frustrating series on for, for any different number of reasons. But uh, I, I think it's very possible we, we look back 10 years from now and think, man, that was the best chance that the Joel Embiid era had at a title. And it's a real shame they didn't capitalize on it. Mm-hmm. I actually, so I read Seamus Clancy's uh, Weapon X mail mag, mailbag for Bleeding Green Nation, and someone asked him, is this the most painful loss you've had, uh, like, as a Philly sports fan, some of these from this past series? He said that Game 5 was the second most painful loss right behind the 2002 NFC Championship the Eagles lost to the Buccaneers. Yeah, that was and a bad one. <laughs> so Game 5, so I'll just ask you, since you've been around for You've like I mean I was around for the NFC championship I was also one so <laughs> I don't exactly have a vivid memory um I actually was living in Ohio at the time but um like uh so if you had to rank 2002 NFC championship and then games five and seven as a Philly sports fans which of those were the most painful yeah I would agree with so that for for context for you that so that Eagles team was that was supposed to be the year they finally had home field and it was like, all right, this was all building to this. We've had some, a few disappointments before, but the path looked cleared very similar to how the Sixers team did. It was because it was the one year, the Patriots in that four year stretch weren't good. Yeah. So they had home field and suddenly it's like, wow. So Joe Jurevicious is just going to Joe Jurevicious was kind of the Kevin Herter in this scenario (laughs) um so and it's like wait what just happened and football's different because it's one and done in the playoffs but it it felt like they were right on the doorstep it was it was nfc championship game so like all right we take care of the bucks at home which you're at home in the playoffs in football you're a you're probably the better team because you likely you you had the better records that nine out of ten times that means you're the better team and then football home field advantage means something a lot more than I think in the NBA does, especially back in the early two thousands. 
so yeah, that that one really hurt. The Sixers, it we're all talking about how the field was wide open, but in our hearts, we were like, well, the Eastern Conference Finals is still going to be a really tough series. It's not like, yeah, it's not it's not like they had a, a cakewalk to to win the title. It was just like this is a better year than most. Um, whereas, yeah, that that Eagles team was. <laughs> everyone just thought this that was the year um in a way that this year everyone thought this could be the year for the sixers but it wasn't like oh they they definitely should win the title no one ever said that they said like this is the year to really take advantage of a pretty weak field um yeah that, I, I would agree with that that that, that eagles loss that was tough <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'll take your word for it. I personally, again, personally can't speak to it. Uh, I'll definitely say, I don't even know which hurt worse. Actually, I do know. I'm, I'm lying when I say that game five hurt worse than game seven. And I, as oh, yeah. you remember last week, I thought the series was done as soon as they lost game five. Cause again, it's kind of like game seven, ugly game. And it was just cause game five, there was no excuse at all to lose that game in any way, shape or form. And you even look back on it like if they just don't blow gigantic leads in games four and five, they win in five and all of this is a, an afterthought. And that's really painful to deal with. Um, in game seven, like just some loose thoughts, like a lot of, I mean, the two main people that people are rightfully blaming are Doc Rivers and uh, Ben Simmons. You know, there are other guys to blame. Uh, like you can be mad that Dwight was just not good at all, but then you can all say, why is Doc playing him so much? Um <laughs> I yeah, mean, that's that's like saying you left the baby in the room with all the china and and weren't <laughs> watching him, and then he breaks something. It's it would be like blaming the baby. Yeah, that, that's fair <laughs> enough. Um, some, I mean, I don't see anyone mad at Seth. It is true that Kevin Herter like was just going at Seth Curry relentlessly. Who could, who could be game. mad at Seth? He was their, <laughs> he, he was, was their second, he was their second, second best player. player all all postseason. No, I'm saying I'm saying no one was mad at Seth. But I said like it was a legit point. Is, it's what everyone pointed out. It's like, yeah, Seth Curry was great in the series, but that's the problem when Seth Curry is clearly your second best player right now. Maybe your team is struggling. Like it's saying something that Seth had to step up that much. And then defensively, just like, I mean, I don't know what Seth's supposed to do. Like that's actually where you do miss Danny green is with a guy like Herter who, I mean, sometimes it comes down to as simple as being Kevin Herter is six, eight and Seth Curry's around like what? Six, two. And I mean, yeah, six, eight, he's, generous he's like a, ge- Herter, but, a generous six, three, I think they might list him at, but like Kevin yeah. Herter has a lot of height and he can dribble to his spots. And it's kind of just like the theme of the series is that the Hawks had way more shot makers than the Sixers. They had guys like, Hey Gallo, go get us a bucket. You can hit shots off the dribble. If the guy on you, if George Hill's guarding you, he's too small. Just rise up over him. They, John Collins hit all those face up jumpers on Toby's Toby's going to back up a little because John Collins a little too quick for him. And he made shots like that. Seth Curry's too small for Kevin Herter. He's going to go into like the mid post, make some buckets. If he steps off too far, Herter can hit threes from there. Lou Williams in game five gets hot because the Sixers are having trouble staying in front of him. He's a little too quick for them. It's all the times where it feels like the Sixers offense is so arduous and just either Joel Embiid does something amazing. Seth Curry hits a tough three or like Tobias Harris, hits a running floater. Like it never feels easy almost when the Sixers were doing offense during that series. Whereas the Hawks, it's you have so many guys who, Basically, the one there were the only two guys in the rotation that were playing who couldn't really go get you. But I'll say three actually. It was Clint Capella on Yeke Kongu and Solomon Hill, and even Solomon Hill was like largely excised from the rotation mainly. So it was basically their two centers who are solid defenders, great rim runners, and like still don't hurt their offense. And then Solomon Hill, who was like 
probably their one guy on their team that had a really bad series. And even then, like, you could still trust him defensively and stuff. And then you look at the Sixers and it's like, man, they just, they're, it's again, it's the same problem as always, like lack of off the dribble creation. It killed us again. It sure did. Um, just to close the loop on the Seth stuff you just mentioned. So first of all, it wasn't like Seth was, he was trying, like he was doing everything he possibly could. It wasn't like he was losing his defender ever. It was just Herder would back him down. And as you said, he's a half foot taller. So he would just shoot over him and he was hitting those 15 footers. And there's nothing Seth can do about that. I think that speaks to one of the many problems people had with Doc's series uh, from the sidelines in that it's pretty obvious that Bogdanovich coming off his his knee issue and even playing in game one last night against the Bucks, he doesn't look like the same player nearly as much. Doc has to see that and see that Herter has it going and, and make a switch and put Seth on Bogdanovich. Oh, sorry, just one second. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I remembered at least when they were closing, they went to Trey, Herter, Gallo, John Collins, and Capella because they wanted to match yeah. the size. And, well, that's the thing that if you go to that five and you kind of need, that's again, this is the whole problem. Like, Trey's probably too a little too quick for Seth. Everyone else is too tall for him, but you need Seth on the court because, like, where else is the offense? And then you're just if Seth wasn't on the court, then just you're basically saying, "Hey, Joel, can you score like with three guys on you, maybe?" Because yeah, no one else is going to create offense for you at that point. It was just, uh, yeah, yeah so I'm not. Yeah, you're right. That that was their closing five, but there was a long period in like the third okay, quarter I, I, of that I, game where. Herder and Bogdanovich were on the court together and Doc had that available for him to like hide Seth on Bogdanovich because they weren't using him because it was pretty clear he wasn't hundred percent by no, no, that makes sense. I just wanted to check it. It's because yep. the I was thinking that because the fourth quarter is the one that obviously like sticks in your memory the most, especially when you're so locked in hoping that those buckets don't go in and they kept going in. Yeah. But so, Herder kept them in the game in the third. Like he got hot. He's a really good player. Like, yeah. I mean, I do have high opinions of some of these Hawks players, like, especially like John Collins through the first half of the series was like a mess. And then he basically decided, you know what? I am just going to be, I mean, he gets away with a lot of fouls. I was very upset that like, they felt like the refs would not call him for hand checks all the time, no matter who he was guarding. But like the dude was playing with incredible energy. He seemingly grabs every important offensive rebound. He, can make he has he's like an incredible leaper as you know can fin- finish all those dunks at weird angles like there was some great ones in their bucks went last night where like the one they did a pick and roll trade just lobbed it off the backboard and john collins got up above everybody for a dunk and he's a pretty good shooter too so he had a really good series i mean gallinari basically just the less even though he looks like about as athletic as any guy you'll find at ymca there's not a lot of bursts there it's just he's 6'10 and he can shoot <laughs> it's really hard to stop him you know I mean, it's obvious, like, you give the Hawks credit. They clearly, like, we probably were not giving them enough credit as a, like, I'm not saying, like, us specifically. Like, the NBA community as a whole was kind of like, oh, yeah, they're they're fine. But it's really like, no, they're they're a contender. They're that good. And they've proven it all season, especially with how much create. They just have so much creation throughout that roster. So many guys who can hit shots off the dribble and keep chains moving once you start a pass. Like, and that was just really important. So, Obviously, give them credit. Still, the Sixers probably should have won the series. Just, I think, I had a little more talent. But, I mean, I understand why the Hawks won, so, in a way. 
Yeah, they're they're set up really well for the future. I mean, they're doing all this without DeAndre Hunter, who's a super switchable defender who can also shoot from the perimeter, and uh, Cam Reddish, who is back for them now but didn't play last night. I don't know if he's ever going to play play this postseason because it's, I don't think he's going to play. Yeah, this, but... it's you got to. It's hard to tell somebody, hey, get your game legs back in a conference finals or whatever. So, but those are two rotation guys um, and they're, they're young and you add them to the rest of their core. They have a really bright future. It's they're set up really well. They, since Nate McMillan took over, they're winning at about a 70% clip this season. It, it's not nearly as much of a fluke as everyone wants to make it out to be. Um, For former Sixers assistant Lloyd Pierce, it is, it has been a rough time for Lloyd. (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't think there people are lining up to to have him be although, their next head coach, we given, mention, given that track record. We should mention former Sixers assistant Ime Udoka is now yep. head coach of the Boston Celtics, which, I mean, you know, upset that it had to be the Celtics because, <laughs> you know, that's like I even tweeted it out before game seven, you know, no matter what happens tonight, at least remember that the Celtics are bad now too, which is kind of fun to remember. But, like, I mean, all reports are that Ime is pretty good, so I would – I'm yeah. a little worried about having him in Boston. <laughs> yeah, he could uh, put it together for them. And we obviously don't want to see that um, here in Philly. But yeah, I mean, just uh, and and then John Collins, who he couldn't play any five against the Sixers because they have the best center in the league, um, or at least the most physically dominant center in the league. And but against teams like you see the Clippers this postseason, they're like using Nick Batum as a small ball five. Any, any team that wants to do something like that, John Collins is the ideal kind of small ball five option for them. So they're, they're very versatile. They, they're very young and they have a, a roster that's very well suited for the modern NBA. Like they, they have a really bright future. Um, and I, I, <laughs> well, the Sixers do because they have Joel Embiid and that, yeah, that's, that's about it. <laughs> yeah. I actually did want to address this. Like, I was trying to think what the Sixers core at the moment is because we're assuming that Ben Simmons will not be a lot around for that much longer. And if I just wrote out like the core of what the Sixers team is now, like guys who aren't getting moved or leaving for at least a few years, Joel Embiid's obviously number one. I would say, I mean, Seth Curry isn't getting moved over these next two years. Would you he's agree? not the core. Yeah. No, he's, he's, on an extremely affordable contract for two more seasons. So he's, want, he's here for two more years, but do you want to I'm call that the core? The, I'm thinking about what the identity of this current team is for at least the next few years. Okay. So I would say it, Seth's a part of that. Yes. Embiid, Toby, Seth, no, they're I, definitely going to be three of the starters for the next two seasons. Even if like, I mean, Toby had a really rough last few games. Again, look at Toby's contract and he did have a good year. It's I, I doubt Tobias is getting traded. No. The other, yeah. The other two guys I would throw in who I'm pretty confident will be here unless the Sixers think they're needed to package in some big deal, which in a way makes them part of the core because they're like key pieces to what you're getting. I, I put Tyrese Maxey and Matisse Thibel down as like guys yeah. I think the Sixers pretty clearly want to keep who yeah. they're high on both of their futures. Um, like there's, I even there, said, there's a scenario where that's the starting five next year. That There is a scenario for that. Um, That would mean the Ben Simmons trade went pretty poorly, but um, <laughs> like uh. Yeah, I mean, Maxi, we've talked about he looks like – I saw one tweet that, by someone saying, like, how bad do you think the Sixers wish they had 26-year-old Tyrese Maxi right now? Like, 
developed Maxi would be so good for this because <laughs> it's clear that he brings what they need. Yeah. Um, so that'd yeah. be nice to just to just have all their players in your prime. Yeah. Like 20, yeah, 26 year old Dwight Howard <laughs> suddenly. Yeah, we just so it's either time travel or we get the cloning machine to make five Joel Embiid's. Like, yeah. but um, and then like Matisse, like you can quibble with Matisse, and we do have to talk about it. Wasn't Matisse's fault, obviously, that they lost the series. There are bigger problems. Um, that foul on Kevin Herter was like horrifically bad. Like, I, I'm sure Matisse feels the same way. You could see he put his hands on his head when he did it. Like, yeah, it was one where it was clear, like. Hey, dude, I know your whole thing is that you're like the steel block monster god, but that, that, this is not the time. Yeah, this he had a, not the time to go for it. He had a couple bad uh, fouls on jump shooters at the end of games in that series. He had the one on Trey also. Like, it, yeah, just maybe another one more year of seasoning for Matisse to just iron out those situations of when when to do it and when not to uh, that might have made all the difference it is notable though i think matisse is 24 like matisse isn't like maxi's the super young one i think maxi's only 20 right yes and then matisse is 24 so obviously matisse isn't old but like spending four years in college it's not like he has the longest developmental track in the world it's more like like you said just playing in more games understanding more situations learning when to temp it down stuff like that um but yeah, those are the five guys I kind of feel like are really set here for the moment as guys the Sixers view as part of their identity. Um, I did want to talk about uh, when I was saying like it felt throughout game seven that the Sixers were grasping for straws at every moment. That's why I kept feeling like the whole time they're going to lose because it kind of felt like they were looking. And this, as sad as it is to say, the ultimate grasping for straws was giving Shake Milton those minutes at the start of the fourth yes. when he had not played the entire game. It Five was, minutes in the fourth quarter of game so, seven. I was, as someone who loves Shake, I'm like, well, you know how hard that is to like sit for three quarters and then tell. I know we did it in game two when he hit all those threes, but it's also like, again, like, you know, we said Matisse, this is not the time. Doc, this is not the time. This is not the time to try this out. Like, I think I was just so bizarre. Like Doc, because there's also an admission from Doc Rivers that he didn't know what to do. He basically he was just trying things. Yeah, it, and he had he had the great game too, but then and then he was fine in game three. After that, he was four for seventeen in the final four games of the series. Shake is very dependent on his like Shake offers some of the things that we're talking about, which is oh, creating a shot the dribble, like that the Sixers lack so much. But yeah, Shake really has to have it going. He is the ultimate, like you can tell what kind of night it is based on his first shot kind of guy. If the first shot goes in, you're getting like a shake explosion and and it's just gonna be awesome. If the first shot doesn't go in, it's like ah, this is probably gonna be like a minus six in the next few minutes. It's it's pretty rough. Has this ever been used before? it's it's an earth shake if, if oh, he has that it is, going <laughs> oh that is so much better than what i said yeah or, okay earth shake tm um oh one last thing i wanted to touch on before we moved on to like reviewing those guys who we didn't mention those five who you know might not be on the sixers for very long very much longer um how did it feel that seth curry finally got the bell ringer in game five i know I've <laughs> and then like basically after the whole joke all the for like this entire podcast like I might have even asked it, asked it to you last week, but like we, I used it as a bit on this pod so much. And then 
Seth explodes over the last three games, but it's too late for the Sixers. It made sense that it finally came as the Sixers were imploding. It, like it took honestly, the, the team falling apart for, for Seth to finally get his due. Honestly, I actually, the way you describe it makes sense because the bell ringer typically goes to the guy we think had like the best night, at least in theory. And the whole thing was Seth never wins it because he was the third best player every night, basically. He was right. just very consistent. Like, oh, he, Seth was good. Seth was good. He was never great. It was always, Seth was good. And then when he was great, it wasn't be, it was part, it was partially because the, the guys who were supposed to be a little bit better than him each night were all worse. Yeah. So Which doesn't, like, doesn't lead to postseason success. No, it does not. Um, there, there are no, as much as we love Seth, there are no hashtag build around Seth com- campaigns. But he is a very valuable piece of the team going forward uh, with great contract and obviously opens up a lot for, for Joel with his shooting ability. Their, their two-man game was probably the most reliable source of offense throughout the postseason. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, now we're going to talk about some guys who uh, may or may not be around for the next two years as we discuss uh, Daryl Morey's off-season decisions he's going to have to make and um yeah the the big one of course and i I guess we're going to start is with ben simmons who is due 147 million over four years how's that number make you feel daniel when you said big one i thought we were talking about danny green but um (laughs) no no that number does not make me feel good um yeah like i don't even know if we should go on about how ben played in this series because i've written about it Dan Volpone wrote about it the other day. Steve wrote about it. Kevin wrote about it. Everyone, like every website has had one article published about it. Uh, I'm pretty sure Jackson Frank wrote about it on uh, Dime Up Rocks. Like any pod you turn on, like, like there's been a lot of, I think everyone understands by this point. Yeah, this isn't good. Um, <laughs> it, it is not good to have a guy who is literally tanking your half court offense just about every time in the playoffs. So yeah. I, my uh, my former editor Jason Pat, who writes for Bloggable, uh, wrote an article today about should the Bulls be thinking about a Ben Simmons trade. So literally every fan base in the league has Ben Simmons on their mind right now. Did it say like um what they would give? He said that Chicago would not think about Levine, and then obviously they don't have the pieces if Levine's not included, um, because their best asset after their two All Stars is. Patrick Williams and that's that's like a non-starter as the the headliner of a Ben package so he said it would have to be like a three-team deal where all of their like non-win now pieces but like future assets would go to a third team and the Sixers would get more of a win now piece in return that would be the only feasible path and that's what's really sad about like waiting this long to maybe move on from Ben is that his value has deteriorated to the point where it's like probably the best player anyone says you could trade him straight up for is CJ McCollum. And yep. want to know, you know, who else was like for years pegged as the trade straight up for CJ McCollum guy, Aaron Gordon. That's about where Ben's values at right now. And um, I just, when I think about it and like <sighs> CJ for Ben is such a sad trade. It is both teams like admitting that they just don't have it. And like, if you're talking to yourselves into it from Portland side, it's like, Maybe Ben's a better player. It's like, we're trading for the guy who legendarily is bad in the playoffs. And if in the Sixers, we're trading for a guy in CJ. We're giving away Ben, who, despite all his flaws, has been a great regular season player, has all these accolades for a guy in CJ who 
everyone is like Kurt, since Mike Conley got the all-star nod is basically his reputation as as the best non-all-star in the NBA maybe at least for the last few years which is like you know I like it but um I had nothing against CJ as a player he's a good player but it's not exactly like I mean how good are the Sixers if their team is now those five guys we, the top six is those five guys we mentioned plus CJ McCollum it's like it's probably a second round team yeah, uh, the the only way I can talk myself into the, the trade is if it's McCollum and Covington, because... You need Rocco back in your life? Yeah, A, it's the, well, at least at least Rocco, like, process core four guy is back, so you, you maintain part of the process core, uh, or it's a net neutral transaction, as far as process core is concerned with with Simmons going out and Covington coming back. But also it's really important from a defensive standpoint because CJ like noted not good defender yeah. and the Sixers are already kind of thin as far as wing defenders are concerned. So if you th- you take Simmons out of the equation, it's like you're asking way too much of Matisse at that point. It's uh, you know, I want to build off this cuz I, th- I heard a great point I think it was by Zach Lowe on the low post the other day. Um when talking about getting rid of Ben is that especially in a Ben for CJ trade, like what happens to the Sixers defense then? Cause then you're basically, you're doing the Utah jazz model of, well, we're surrounding Rudy Gobert with four good off, really good offensive players. They're not very good defenders, but he'll just clean up everything on defense. And then you get a series of the Clippers where they go small ball five. And they're basically like destroying every single perimeter player on the jazz. And then Rudy can only cover so much. And then you have a problem there. It's like, Embiid, you're basically asking Embiid to, defensively like turn it up even a few more notches after he's been so great defensively throughout his career to cover up for guys who like just like you said like if if your starters around him are like three of them are Tobias Seth Curry and CJ McCollum like I'm pretty sure most of those guys can get driven by like even Tobias who's had some really good defensive moments like obviously not a lockdown guy has struggles with speed at times so it's just there is no good answer I, I don't I haven't found a trade yet where I'm like a realistic trade where I think, you know, oh man, that's really good. Like I, I can actually, I'll, I'll see that trade happen. And I'll be okay with it. Like, cause you know, all of those are basically gone now. Like if it was Ben Simmons for Zach Levine's trade, I'd be pretty happy. I think, cause I think even though Zach Levine is a bad defender, Zach Levine's that special offensively that you're really getting at something. Same thing like, like CJ's running mate, Dame Lillard, like you get Dame and Joel, like your offense is going to go through the roof. You get Bradley Beal, same thing, offense through the roof. CJ McCollum, it's like, yeah, he's good on offense. Your playoff offense will be better. That's about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, I mean, the obvious problem is that you're trading Ben at an all-time low. Like, we not, not too long ago, we were discussing Ben Simmons as the headliner in a James Harden package. And it seemed like everyone thought that was a realistic trade. And the only reason it didn't happen was because uh, – Houston's owner did, was so bitter about Daryl leaving that he didn't even want to do a trade with him. And, and um, that if he was going to do it, he was demanding like every single pick and young prospect the Sixers have. Right. It was, it was the bitter at Daryl tax that mm-hmm. would have taken, but, and, and in hindsight, like getting Ben, even this version of Ben and this, his current value was exponentially better return than what Houston ended up getting. Well, so is, is it though? Because like, they were basically betting against Brooklyn's health long-term. And like, as we saw Brooklyn, like those guys are awesome, especially Durant and Kyrie. I mean, Harden was when he got injured in this series too, but 
Durant and Kyrie have pretty lengthy injury histories, and they're basically betting that at some point those guys are going to all leave or all be injured, and then Brooklyn won't be as good, and we'll soak up all those picks. So I'm not necessarily saying they're right, but I'm saying, like, I honestly don't know which – I think we'll have to see how it plays out, like, because there's two unknowns now. It's how good those Brooklyn picks end up being, and it's like – and the other unknown is can Ben Simmons, like, be a major piece of your team – and you go meaningfully far in the playoffs because so far we're 0 for 3. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, the draft picks could wind up being good. I'd, I'd still be kind of bearish on them um, because the Brooklyn, I'd say for the next two years at least, are, are, are going to be one of the better teams in the league. And then beyond that, who knows? But also the, the NBA has flattened the odds in the lottery to the point like, oh, even if Brooklyn's the fifth worst team in the league, which I don't think is very likely. But then even then you're still not really guaranteed a game changing prospect. Um, and and that would be what, that would be the best piece you got back in a James Harden trade like that. That'd be pretty sad if, if I'm Houston, whereas at, at least with Ben, you had something to build around. And I think him and Christian Wood would be a pretty, ideal pairing as as far as a, a front court is concerned so also, also part i will just also say this is that by not getting ben simmons who we see can clearly have some success in the regular season you allow yourself to bottom out keep that pick that you might have owed to okc and now they have the second pick in the draft which i would guess will likely be used on usc's evan mobley and i'm pretty sure evan mobley is like just from reading draft circles and stuff like that Cade Cunningham is the guy, the superstar, but Evan Mobley is like basically the consensus opinion on Evan Mobley is like Cade Cunningham is that rare type of prospect who is always going to be number one. And pretty much any other draft, Evan Mobley would usually be number one, like undoubtedly, because he is also near that level. So you, you get what I'm saying there. Like by allowing yourself to bottom out, you get a guy, you get a chance at a guy in Mobley who really might be that special and really be able to take your franchise moving forward. In hindsight, Yes, it, it definitely worked out for them, but I don't think Houston had when they were trading hard in a way was thinking, oh, we're going to be a the, we're going to have the best lottery that, odds. That, of the that end is of the season. It was very much a. <laughs> they kind of they kind of backed into that one. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying there. Um, we've gone on for a while without actually out without actually mentioning what we think the Sixers might do with Ben. Um, I mean, we're pretty sure he's getting traded this offseason, right? Yeah, my my hope is that it's for. 75 cents on the dollar and not 40 cents on the dollar that is it's... such a sad statement do you have any <laughs> trade ideas besides the cj mccollum on you just wanted to throw out there no <laughs> there's honestly nothing i've i've come across where i really yeah. thought like this would okay. benefit the sixers I, f- I feel like if they can get covington i'm fine with cj and covington and then give dwight plus a pick for dario from the suns and just get the whole <laughs> game at least if we're not going to be good we are going to have amazing vibes uh indiana just hired rick carlisle and i feel like tj is a rick carlisle kind of player so i don't feel like they can get tj back but sean sean is this a scoop (laughs) (laughs) no it just it came across on twitter yeah um yeah okay that's i mean good hire rick carlisle's a fantastic coach yeah um yeah so yeah just find a way to get tj and dario back maybe even like sign tony wrote into a 10 day like just allow all the good Good process vibes to flow. At least we're gonna have fun, even if we're not gonna win a title. Yeah. Um, Justin Anderson will definitely be back in camp. Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> but uh, other trades have been thrown out. Uh, 
Ben for D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley. And everyone immediately sees D'Angelo's name and says like, you know, as the, the very no. smarter than you NBA Twitter section, which I honestly try and put myself in sometimes, uh, is very much like D'Angelo does not help you win at a high level. It's all of the shots are difficult. Does not create easy shots. There is, a, again, it's like the same thing as CJ though. It's like you get two light, like very good shooters then you just open up the floor for Embiid, but I, I don't love that trade either. Just some others I throw out there was like Tim Hardaway Jr. is going to be a free agent, but like if there's any way to do a sign and trade and then maybe get like Ben for Tim Hardaway Jr. and Jalen Brunson, <laughs> I don't understand how it all works, but like, although like based on how they play in the playoffs, like is, is Tim Hardaway Jr. just like better than Ben Simmons? No, like, I, Tim I Hardaway Jr. Know, hits, hits threes. Okay, That's but about in, it. The, in the playoffs, Tim Hardaway Jr. was the – and throughout the whole season, Tim Hardaway Jr. was the Mavs' second-best player, and he was good in the playoffs. I, I just want to say that. I, I mean, I, that's, I that's fine, but he I, they lost in the first round, so I don't care about him being the second-best player on a team that lost in the first round. I, 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 know you're, I know you're right that Ben's better than THA, and that's, I believe that too, but it's also like in terms of their playoff value, I'm not sure how different it is. <laughs> You, you get what I'm saying, right? But but the Sixers are exponentially worse in the regular season. So suddenly you're talking about them being like a four seed again. Well, but I'm <laughs> just, but what about like if you have two guys in Hardaway Jr. and Jalen Brunson, you know what they can both do? They can both create shots off the dribble for themselves. If you step at Hardaway Jr. can rise in the pull-ups. Jalen Brunson's whole shtick is that he's basically like a, a short mid-range ISO demigod who just like basically puts his shoulder into everyone and goes into a fader and he's fantastic at it like you're not telling me you're not at least thinking <laughs> about like I'm just trying to think of any ways to juice the offense and on top of that well I don't think either of them are very good defenders they're not like the, the problem with D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley is that you are literally setting like your perimeter defense in flames like they're a little bit better than that on defense yeah, they're fine. Um, I, I'm a Nova guy, so obviously I love the idea of Jalen Brunson in a Sixers uniform, but that's that's a terrible return for Ben Simmons. I, I, I don't well, even guess think what? about We're that. We're going to get a terrible – I'm telling <laughs> you, you want 75 cents on the dollar. We are getting 40. I'm just telling you right now. Well, I, I would take CJ alone before I took Tim Hardaway Jr. and Jalen Brunson. Um, sure. I, I don't even think I understand how trades work, so I think I, that one – I don't even know if that one's possible. Plus yeah. – but but speaking of sign-in trades, though, what do you think about a Kyle Lowry sign-in trade for Simmons? Uh, why, why are the Raptors doing it? I know because, because Lowry could leave and go anywhere he wants, I guess. And he would, he would say, like, oh, that's okay. I'm a, I'm a Philly hometown guy. Like, I would, I would love to go there. Like, let's make think, it work. I think a playoff offense with Ben Simmons and Pascal Siakam would be very hard to watch. If even though the defense would be awesome, just I it's it's the same problem I keep running into. It's like, and this is what the problem then is as a player. It's like I'm th- now after seeing it for so many years, like what offense is there out there that like doesn't like doesn't go in the toilet when Ben's on the court, especially when and you're playing that half court offense and teams can just ignore him basically most of the time. And you know, everyone will say, Oh, why can't he be Draymond for the Warriors? Like, and I mean, there's a lot of reasons that Draymond actually does those things better is that he moves more off the ball. Draymond is incredibly engaged. Draymond, despite not being a good shooter, will shoot and will drive and try and finish aggressively, kind of forcing defenses to look at him a little bit. 
He's a better passer. Like they're both good passers. Draymond is a better passer. He's a better screener. He does all these kinds of things well. And then most importantly, Draymond is playing next to Steph Curry for in his absolute prime is playing next to Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Kevin Durant. When you have that much shooting and scoring around you, like it becomes a little bit, it's a little bit okay that you yourself are not a great three point shooter or like, you, you know what else Draymond green has never done pass up on a wide open dunk with only Trey young under the rim. Can we just name the podcast that <laughs> like the open dunk with Trey Young nearby? I don't know, but uh, it was pretty uh, bad. Um, all right. Enough, enough uh, Ben Simmons depressing talk, I guess. Let's move, let's move on to the other, the other guys that, uh, not are actually free agents or or could be free agents after the season. Do we, we want to do Danny Green here? Because I think he's the most important one. Yeah, sure. Go for it. Go for it. So he made 15 million this past year. He is an unrestricted free agent. Um, it's really tough. I'm not sure what they should do. Uh, I would guess he's going to make a little less money than he did in this last contract due to his age. The honestly sometimes that the stereotype that he has been bad in the playoffs because you always see his name trend when he's missing all those threes but i i'm just trying to think of reasons why teams wouldn't sign him then and then he does obviously has he i wrote down limitations as a creator parentheses he he is not a creator as he's like zero percent creator but um, uh I, I i don't know like what contract are you okay with with for Danny Green because I think it he was obviously good this past year they definitely missed him throughout the back half of the series what would you give Danny Green I think anything between 10 to 15 million is fine the 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 key the key thing is that they have their his his bird rights so they can be over the cap and still offer him like anything in a reasonable range that they they can be in the ballpark of what anyone else would offer him like no one's going to blow the Sixers out of the water and they they wouldn't be able to offer him a similar deal like that that's what the fair market value for him is so if he wants to come back and he it, by all indications he liked the situation here he likes playing for doc and I, I wouldn't say that he would he'd probably stick around as long as the the money was similar so you keep Danny around because you're not going to have cap space so the only avenue f- for you to replace him would be like the mid-level exception. Danny's a better player than whatever you can get on the middle level exception. Plus keeping him around on a, on a contract from the, around that price range could potentially help you down the road with matching salaries in a trade for, for a bigger star. Um, th- this is, this is similar to the situation last year where everyone said, why didn't they just resign TJ at the very least having that seven million dollars on the books could help you put together a trade later and in the meantime he's a he's a helpful rotation player and it wasn't you like you're over the cap anyway so he was a guy you could bring in without while still being over the cap like it's not like there were there was a guy you could bring in because you let tj go um so it's the same situation in my mind and it's kind of a no-brainer for me to to bring danny back if he wants to be back yeah, I'm just I'm trying to think. I think there it won't happen where like some team just randomly offers him even more money. I think like I don't think he's getting more than 15 million. If he does, I mean, I mean good for Danny, but I, I would be surprised to see a team talk themselves into him being worth that much. Um 
And I think you especially keep him if you're going to then like let guys like Dwight Howard and Furkan Korkmaz walk, which do you think they will do with that? Like, what were your thoughts on like Furkan and Dwight coming back? Because, I mean, I think everyone was thinking, yeah, bring Dwight back after the whole regular season. Then we saw how it went in the playoffs. You could obviously argue that it was, again, the fault of Doc Rivers and Ben Simmons. Um, I And then Furkan, like, I mean, he started the last few games and had some decent moments, but I just don't know, man. For so again, Furcon is so much like Shake, where it's like it so much depends on whether the shots falling that night, and I don't know if I just want to live and die with that. So with Dwight, I'd be fine bringing him back on another veteran minimum, but you yeah, have to, you you have to have a stretch five on the roster. So if if you're able to get a stretch five on the roster, and then tell Dwight like, listen, some nights you're not going to play. There's going to be X number of games during the regular season where Joel is sitting. You'll be the starter then, so you'll get your minutes then. There might be certain matchups where they have like this bruising physical rebounder coming off the bench, and that would be a good matchup for you, and we're going to use you then. But he can't. it can't be, hey, Dwight's our backup center, and we're going to go in the postseason with Dwight as our backup center. That That is a non-starter. So hmm. if – if they're re-signing him with that in mind, then absolutely not. But if it's, hey, he liked it in Philly and he wants to come back on another vet men deal and he's okay with a situation where he might not even play some nights because they brought in an actual stretch five and that's all cool, like, then fine, bring him back. I think he was a good, like, energy guy. He, Everybody seemed to like having him around and he did play like well for a backup center in the regular season. So that, that's all cool. And like veteran minimum, like it's not going to hurt you money wise. That's fine. But that's the situation. Like you, regardless of what happens with Dwight, you need a stretch five on the roster. Yeah. I I mean, I wrote that down too, that basically, yeah, if Dwight wants to come back on another super cheap deal, then sure, I guess you can do it. But like it can't, if a team saw his performance during the regular season, then like their TVs went out during the playoffs and wants to offer him like <laughs> 5 million a year you know, then sure, like, we'll just have our one year of Dwight and let him go. Um, as far as Furcon goes, uh, I mean, it's just like, it feels very limited what you can do with him because he's very much like he can shoot off the move, occasionally drive, can at least handle the ball a little bit, but defensively is pretty bad. The Hawks went after him, like, trying to get him in pick and roll actions catch him like sleeping when guys would slip out of ball screens especially Kevin Herter like I I just don't I just don't think he's good enough to really pay him a ton of money but I mean someone will pay him because he is a shooter of size yeah he I mean and he had a a really good shooting year he improved marginally defensively um so yes people are going to give him a look for sure I'm in a similar situation as far as I don't think like on the court I, even if he continues to slightly improve next season, I don't think he can be a, a viable part of your postseason rotation. So mm-hmm. at that point, it's like, all right, why, why even bother? But in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is a, again, like you have a bird rights. You're not able to, it's not going to like preclude you from bringing someone else in by letting him go. So why not bring him back and you have an extra if somebody didn't blow him out of the water, maybe like a, a five to $7 million deal per year, like that could be helpful for salary matching. 
at, and and that would be viewed as like, oh, well, he he's not a negative asset that you're including in the deal. That's something where people could be like, oh, we got Quirk Mutz too. Like, that's nice. He could maybe help our team um, while, you know, helping the salary component of it. And so in the back of my mind, I'm just like, do you let that go for nothing? Like that, that possibility down the road? Um, the downside obviously would be like two years from now, you're paying Quirk Mutz. If you didn't trade him, you're paying him $7 million a year. And that could help your, that could hurt your cap situation down the road. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm kind of, this is, he's probably the one I'm most ambivalent about. Like I could see it going either way and I'd be fine with it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how I feel too. Um, can you explain how George Hills works to me? Cause I was a little confused by that. And I would also assume because they traded legitimate capital for him that they will not let him walk. They're at least going to want to get more return on their investment. So yeah. I would say so he has 1.3 million guaranteed. So they could cut him and he they would only owe him 1.3 million on the cap. Or if they don't buy, it's August 3rd. Yeah. If, if he's still on the team at August 3rd, then the entire $10 million of his salary is fully guaranteed. So I, I don't think there's any situation where they cut him. I think that you're, you're right. They, they gave up something to get him. He didn't play particularly well. Um, he was coming off the, the thumb injury and then he did, I mean, he didn't play well, but again, it was like the same thing. Like, I don't think it was his fault, but like he had a yeah. few bad moments. I can't remember which game might've been like game two where like, I think Trey and Lou were just a little too quick for him, but he occasionally hit some big shots. He, he had that one big pull up three in the one game. Um, he like, and I think he's still like a solid player that you can put in the rotation and I don't feel bad about it, which does right. matter for a contending team like this. Yeah, and for for all the all the reasons that they they wanted to bring him in, in the first place, like they still exist. Like he's a guy who can create a shot a tiny bit. He's a good floor spacer. He's a solid defender from the guard position. Like he does a a lot of things slightly above average that he can help you kind of across the board. So if he's still around next year, that's that's fine. He's a, he's a good rotation guy. Um, and and again, as I said with Danny, like ten million dollars on the books suddenly you you could potentially package hill and green and that could be that could be your salary to match to get a disgruntled star next year like mm -hmm. so i don't i don't see any reason why you would just let hill walk um it doesn't make sense from a team building perspective for our other two free agents mike scott and anthony Tolliver, <laughs> i just both i wrote under both of their names lol no <laughs> yeah mike's gone thanks for the shot against brooklyn mike yeah, thanks for you, the, like, the hive as much as we were mad like this past season, like it is all worth it for that one, which tells you how much the playoffs matter. That one game will ever forever make people think, you know, yeah. like Scott, you know, it was a worth it was worthwhile trade, worthwhile yeah. happening in town. For sure. He the, the hive started because of him. He showed up at people's weddings. He um got, th got there was the that Eagles fan. Got in a fight outside of the Eagles game, which, you know not not great from a i'm a philadelphia Japan friends perspective but it was content we always appreciate content um there's that couple month period where it was what hockey jersey will mike scott wear to the game was kind of a thing that was fun uh yeah he, he's a fun guy to have around um i i wish him the best of luck with whatever team wants to sign him on a veteran minimum next year i uh, i don't see any reason for the sixers to bring him back um anthony tolliver so his contract is currently non-guaranteed 
at 2.7 million until September 6th. So what the Sixers should do is keep him on the roster until September 5th, just in case there's a trade that they need an extra 2.7 million in salary to send out. And then on September 5th, you cut him if that has not happened. But nice, nice, uh, as we said, when it happened, nice bit of business by Daryl to um, add that non-guaranteed second year to his deal because, hey, that, that could help if, if you need a little extra salary to match a trade this summer. So um, otherwise, Anthony Tolliver, I can't think of any enjoyable moments with you on the team. I'm sure you're a nice guy. Yeah. His, he hit some. He hit like a few threes, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I think yeah. a couple in the garbage time of games. Right? I think he started like over fourteen before finally hitting one, though. It was so really he, bad. It was it was some Glenn <laughs> Robinson type stuff. Yeah, it it was not not a great Sixers tenure for Anthony Tolliver. Which is sad because for so long he was a hypothetical great fit with the Sixers. Yeah. Well, it was purely hypothetical in the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True that. Um. We had planned to maybe do some favorite Sixers moments from this past season at the end of this pod, but considering we've already gone 52 uh-huh. minutes here. I, I feel like we I, have to do, we have to have some more optimism wait, to end I, this pod. You know, hear, hear me out, hear me out. Next week's pod is just like a full what we loved about the Sixers season, and we don't have to limit it to three favorite moments. Hmm? Mm-hmm. All right, uh, I, I am mere, I'm a mere co-host, Daniel, so if that's, if that's what you want to do, that's what we'll do, but... At, at least say something you're happy about, because we have to we have to end on somewhat positive note. You've been you've been way too down in the dumps the last two weeks. Well, okay, so part of it was see people really worry about me because I was <laughs> sad, but honestly wasn't that sad. But also my phone broke this past week, and for five days I did not have a phone at all, <laughs> so I did not get any text messages. People were like wondering where I was or what I was doing. And I went to the beach one day with my sisters and my mom, and. You know, it was honestly like a, it was the day after the game seven loss. It was like a cleansing experience. No phone, just sat at the beach all day. No, like no technology with me that I was at least personally using. So, you know, an interesting day, but uh, I'm fine now. Uh, I'm happy about uh, the, what I, you know, I'm happy. I like watching the Phoenix Suns a lot because they are very good and very fun to watch a uh, campaign. Like is Ron footing inside hand finishing and, it's like scoop layuping every like taller defender on earth. And it's awesome. As sad as it is to know, Mikhail Bridges isn't a sixer and was for a little bit. I still always love seeing him succeed. Even a guy like DeAndre Ayton, I've always been lower on has just been killing it in these playoffs. And like, it was my big thing. I tweeted this out about the Suns, why they could probably win a title is that you think of them as like a team of only two stars and Booker and Chris Paul, but honestly, the way they've been playing the last few months, like I don't have any qualms calling, Mikhail Bridges and DeAndre and all-star level players. Cause I think they are that around that like top 40, top 30 range. And then when you think about that and they have all those good other good role players after them and Jay Crowder campaign, uh, Cam Johnson to, to uh, for, I was messing up my words there. Dario Saric occasionally has his moments like Tory Craig always loved him. Like it makes sense why they're good and up to nothing, which of course the Clippers have been down to nothing in their first two series. So they could definitely still come back from that, even though it's going to be harder without Kawhi Leonard. Um, I, I just really enjoyed watching them. Like, it's fun watching a team like them succeed. All right. So the thing Daniel is kind of happy about is how well Phoenix is doing. Well, but... it's, I, I can appreciate other good basketball teams. Also, I know. 
Oh, okay, I was just I was trying to draw some Sixers positivity out of you and you came away with I like Phoenix. Oh okay. Okay. This, well the big Sixers positivity the big positive Sixers takeaway from this whole season, no matter how depressingly it ended, that Joel Embiid really is that guy. You know, injuries are really the only thing that can stop him at this point, because he is just unbelievably good, you know. That was the question in years past. Like Embiid was maybe a top ten player in the NBA, but even that was like bordering on it. And now I don't can't I don't think anyone could tell you his performance this season that he wasn't a top five player at least for the season. So he was an MVP runner up. Yeah. So that really means a lot that the Sixers do have that caliber of guy. Um, again, I was pro- too young for Iverson for the most part, so it's the first time I've like got to grow up watching a Sixers player who's regarded that highly around the league, which, which is really cool. It is. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Uh, they have a guy who can definitively be the top option on a title team. Um, I think MB had proved that with his performance this year. Um, also, I just love, this is going to be one of my three moments was the him coming out with triple H to do the, the DX chop before that, game one against Atlanta. As great as that is, it's it's ruined by how bad they got shellacked <laughs> in the first half. I, I was going to, I was going to couch it by saying if we're just talking about moments and not any surrounding circumstances around it, but it was because literally everyone tweeted after that happened, oh the Sixers are winning by 40 down 30 in the first quarter. Like yeah, it, was it was a it was a rough swing for sure. <laughs> but I just love that not only is Joel that guy, as you said, he's also a guy that appreciates that sports ultimately are an entertainment platform. So mm-hmm. he will do stuff like that. He will do stuff like the Phantom of the Process and come out in a the half opera mask thing. Like he gets that it's supposed to be fun. And I, I also love that about Joel. So I love him both as a player and as a guy that has a great sense of humor and is willing to be a little silly or be a little trollish and I, I just love that he's 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 our guy so that's that's my main takeaway from the season is that Joel is uh definitely our guy and I am so glad that he's a sixer that is a good place to end on and yeah ne- plan for next week's pod will be reliving the good moments of the what it was until this last round a very very good and very enjoyable season um but it's okay to still be a little upset for now. It's still healing. Uh, hopefully the Hawks lose in the conference finals so we can all keep our sanity. But they might we'll, not, Daniel. They, they look good. <laughs> they do look good. They won nothing. But, uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Sean, uh, great talking to you. Thanks again for trying to help me out of my Sixers doomdom. But um, I will talk to you next week. All right. Take care, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.